Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Right into it. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. If you got a Bible, uh, you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, we put most of the verses up on the screen. They won't all be up there today. And that's not because the tech team's not doing a good job. It's because I threw some extra stuff at them uh, in the first service and didn't tell them I was going to do it again. So we're going to do that uh, again today. So you have bonus material in this message. Praise God, it does get over on time. And uh, at least at the first service. If you want a shorter message, come to the first service. <laughs> It's a great service. <laughs> but let me pray for us. We'll, we'll open the word. Father, thank you uh, for your truth. Thank you for your people. Thank you that you bring people here that are not yet your people. I pray you'd save them today. I pray you'd do a miracle. I pray you would do something that people couldn't even believe is possible. Transform minds. You promised that in your word, that we wouldn't be conformed to this world. We saw last week when we conform to this world, we compromise. Instead, will you transform our minds so that we could live as the living sacrifices you desire for us to be? And you know what that means for each person that'll hear these words, whether they're watching online at Starbucks, in their living room, sitting in this room, uh, the little kids that are in the nursery, the big kids that are in other spots. Father, I just pray, God, that you'd do something all over this campus today and it'd be so obvious that you are here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, today's message is really part two of last week's message, so if you weren't here last week, uh, you're lost. Just kidding. Uh, we're glad you're here, and I'll just tell you kind of what we talked about last week was, why is it so often we open up our Bibles... We read about what it looked like to be a part of the church in the book of Acts or in Ephesus or Rome, like all these different places, and then our experience of living out Christianity here in America is so different. And I challenged us that it's probably, while it's trendy to tear apart the church, it's probably not what your church is doing. And so some of you are watching this in your church or you're a guest here today. Um, if you look at the book of Acts, what they were doing in the church was pretty simple. Praying, uh, studying the New Testament together, having relationships with each other, and breaking bread together. It wasn't like complex. They weren't arguing about whether they should have drums or what time the service should be. Is it in a house and how big should it get? All that nonsense. So we are messed up as the church, but that's because we're messed up as people. Sinners sin against each other. Maybe the real issue is how we live this out after the service. And that so many of us as American Christians don't even have any real risk in our lives. And so you see in the Bible these people living these radical lives of faith, and we're using the word faith and risk synonymously. And so when we talk about risk, I'm not talking about just doing some stupid stuff in the name of Jesus, by the way. The other day I, I saw a video on social media. Uh, there was this guy driving a boat. He's probably 16, 17 years old. And his buddy was wakeboarding on the back. And so he's holding the rope and wakeboarding. And the guy's got his GoPro set up or phone or whatever he's got on, on the visor set up up there. And then he decides, once the GoPro's all set, that he's going to stop driving the boat and also go wakeboard on the back without a rope. Bad news is, he wiped out. No problem. His friend thinks, I'll pull myself in the boat, and then I'll fix this. And then he wipes out. And then the boat just keeps driving. I do not know how that ended. <laughs> that is a risk, also known as stupidity. I sent that video to our family. I uh, screen recorded it, sent it to my girls because I'm telling them all the time, boys, before they're 25 years old, they're messed up. Like, they're all idiots, okay? They do stupid stuff. And so I said, I was one. If you are one, don't worry. It gets better. At some point, it will change. But all kinds of stuff's happening. Their brain's foggy. Their hormones are raging. Like, they're just dumb, okay? And so I tell them, don't pay any attention to these boys until they're at least 25. They're all stupid. And so I send this thing, and I say, here's evidence. And they watch the video, and they're like, well, those boys are stupid. And so that's true. Just so you know, that's true. Love you, boys. Glad you're here. Jesus loves everybody. Girls, 
Don't even pay attention at this stage. <laughs> but that was risk, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just doing anything that has danger associated with it in the name of Jesus. We're talking about stepping into the things that God commanded and called us to do, and you don't know how it's going to turn out, and that's why it's risk. And we're talking about how even the stuff that we do is oftentimes so controlled that we really do know how it's going to turn out. And so few of us have any real risk. And today we're going to talk about how real risk requires at least two courageous choices. And we see them in the life of Moses. We started with Moses last week. If you get your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Last week, we only covered one verse, verse 23. In the first service, uh, we covered several verses. So it was a great Sunday um, working through this. We've been in Hebrews all year, by the way, those of you who are new today. And uh, what's happening in Hebrews is there's this group of people that at one time were more than willing to risk for Jesus. In fact, he uses them as an example, the author of the book does, in chapter 10 and verse 34 when he says this, for you, so he's using them as their own example, for you had compassion on those in prison. So we go to these apartments, we give out the backpacks, stuff you heard early in the service. They were going and visiting people in prison. Uh, that was how people in prison ate then, by the way, that somebody else brought them food. And you were associating though with Christians and that meant persecution for you. And look what it says next. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What they're doing is they're living out Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, when Jesus tells the parable, there's a guy who found a treasure in a field and in his joy went and sold all of his possessions because he knew what he was getting was better. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's talking about eternal rewards. He said, but now he's writing to these people, we know when we read the rest of the book, that are thinking about abandoning their relationship with Jesus in exchange for religion. That's one of the big problems in the American church, by the way. Because that's comfortable, that's controlled. Following Jesus, that's risky. So look at what he says as an encouraging, a word to give courage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, a few verses later. But we, that's not our identity, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith take risks and preserve their souls. And then he talks about what faith is. He defines it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses one through three. He defines it as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And he gives example after example after example. By faith, insert the name, and then what they not believed, what they did. Because faith is action. Faith is not your belief system. So he shows what they did. And we're looking at Moses. This is the formula last week. Hebrews 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, so faith, person, action, but the action's not even by Moses, it's his parents. And so last week we started this talk on Moses, but it was really about his parents. When he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was God's good creation, we saw last week. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Underline that, that's important, we're gonna see that again. And so these people, they brought Moses into their home, were not afraid of the king's edict. Now we're going to get into Moses, verse 24. By faith, Moses, formula, by faith, name, here's the action. When he was grown up, first action, refused. What was the object of his refusal? To be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then the second action, he chooses. So he refuses and he chooses. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, so here's how he does it, more action, and consider the reproach of Christ. 
of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How is Jesus being considered in the book of Exodus? And we could show you that in the scriptures where he's promised in Genesis 3.15 and trace the promises through to the Exodus. But here's the reality about Jesus. He's before. And it doesn't matter what I say next. He's before the Christmas story. He's before history. He's before creation. Jesus always was. And the things that are happening in Exodus are actually pointing us to Jesus. So Moses knew of Jesus. He knew of a promised Christ to come. This is the approach of Christ he considered as he weighed his options. The word considered means he's weighing things out. What is weightier? The reproach of Christ, he said, is weightier wealth, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Now, some of you are like, ah, Jesus wasn't doing it for the reward. You should just do it because, because you're a Christian. (laughs) Here's what I encourage you to do, all Christians. Uh, Don't listen to other Christians and what they say. Go and see what the Bible says. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards. In fact, when faith is being defined, it talks about seeking the reward. And so here it's saying that Moses was doing this because he was seeking a greater reward. And then it says, verse 27, by faith he, Moses, so there's a formula, by faith Moses, what did he do? Left Egypt not being afraid. Verse 23, that was what his parents were like. And so here we've got this theme of the lack of fear in both of these scenarios. And don't forget why Hebrews 11 was written. We talked about last week, uh, Top Gun Maverick and how Tom Cruise stole the plane. (laughs) Yeah, didn't get in trouble. Steals the plane, flies through the training course that they thought was impossible. Impossible course, impossible time, impossible shot, impossible escape. And not only did he tell them it was possible, he did it. And once you know something's possible, you know that you can do it. The point of Moses being in Hebrews chapter 11 is not so that today we read about Moses and be like, man, Moses was awesome. Do you want to get a burger or do you think I'm Mexican? Like, what do we do now? It's because whatever God's stirring in your heart for you to step out to do, you've got some courageous choices to make too. And not only can you do it, it's been done. See, when we were teaching uh, earlier in the year and we got to Hebrews chapter 12 because we jumped over 11 went to 12, we were teaching Hebrews chapter 12, the illustration I used rather than Top Gun Maverick, same illustration was that they used to say it was impossible to run a four-minute mile. But once a guy did it, a few months later, somebody else did it. And now people keep doing it. And in fact, this year, a high school kid did it. But we thought at one time a human body couldn't go that. Can't break the speed of sound. Can't fly up. How do you make metal float through the air? Like all those things that we're told are impossible. Now we know they're not only possible, we expect them to be done. When you read Hebrews 11, the only thing that's impossible is to please God without risking Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not impossible to live by faith. It's impossible to please him if you don't. And so what you see with the life of Moses is that God calls him to these courageous choices. And we already read them. We'll go back over them. But don't forget, Moses isn't this brave hero standing in front of the, the Red Sea with his face glowing and just God found the right guy. Remember the burning bush call? He's a coward. All the excuses he gave, who am I? And then God doesn't answer back, well, Moses, you're handsome and smart, and by golly, people like you. (laughs) We didn't talk about God's answer last week. God's answer is who he is, God. I am with you, and I will go. And then he said, but I don't like your plan. (laughs) 
And God doesn't go, all right, well, what would you write? He tells them why the plan's good. And he's, yeah, but I don't think they're going to believe me. And I can't talk. And he's, I made your mouth and I'll tell you what to say. And remember, he gets to the point where he's basically like a teenager. Could you just ask somebody else? And God doesn't throw fire from heaven and wipe him out. That's a miracle. But what God's doing is he's calling a coward to make a courageous choice. So some of you, when you see these choices that I'm about to present to you, it's two courageous choices. You're going to be like, yeah, but some people, and there might be somebody in this room, there's some great people in this church, or somebody like Moses, but no, he calls coward. Remember the New Testament? Peter thought he was brave because he had machismo, he had the bravado. That's why guys are so dumb, like so dumb. He says to the other disciples that are standing there and Jesus, if, every, if these losers ditch you, I'll die for you. Some girl comes up to him. Hey, weren't you? I don't know. I've never been with that man. Calls down curses from heaven. Sorry, uh, those of you who don't want uh, anything that's not PG, don't read your Bible, because at least are. Curses from heaven. If I ever knew that guy, denies Jesus, and then who is God going to use to start his church that we look at and go, how come my experience isn't like a coward? Because he calls even cowards to make courageous choices. See, oftentimes, oftentimes, the people that God uses the greatest are the ones that risk the greatest. But it's not because they're awesome. It's because God wants to get the glory. And he puts these choices before all of them, I believe, but Moses makes it really clear. There's two courageous choices. First one is this, uh, courageous choice number one, the choice to refuse temporary temptation. And so what you see in this passage, if you want the whole outline, I know some of you are A-type personalities, I don't know how long uh, we'll spend on each point, but it's refuses, chooses, and that's how God uses. The one who refuses the temporary temptation and chooses the eternal reward is the one that God uses greatly. And so here, it's the refuses the temporary temptation. Before we jump back into Moses' life, let me just ask you this. What would it cost for you to deny Jesus? Those of you that are Christians, what would it cost? Maybe it's a dollar amount, maybe it's something else. I remember when I was coming toward the end of my time in seminary and uh, my wife and I were feeling, sensing that God was calling us to plant a church. We didn't know Raleigh-Durham. We didn't know that. Um, God was working those pieces out, but we had the map out and we're praying. And, and I had a good job um, when we were in seminary. Unlike most of you, I got paid a lot more money than a lot of people did. And seminary and our company I was at was promising things if I would stay. And so I was wrestling with this and went to one of my professors, Bill Lawrence, said, Dr. Lawrence. Here's my scenario. We think that God's calling us to do this, but then there's the opportunities. Maybe God's using that as a platform, and what should I do? And he just, real point blankly, he didn't need to hear all the details. He said, God's calling you to go? Go. I said, yeah, but what about these things? And he's like, if God's calling you to go, you go. And then he said, Scott, this city, and I was in Dallas, Texas, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, said this city is filled with people who graduated from this seminary and sold their calling for some comfort. And I said, what, did it, what, was the, what was the cost for that for them? And he, he mentioned a dollar amount. The dollar amount is actually lower than the average median income around here, by the way. So it wasn't some huge number. I said, okay, what's the cost for you? Maybe it's not money. Maybe, what if you had promised comfort, promised security, promised this would never happen, promised your dream would come true? Then, would you? Because what happens here in this passage, the temporary temptation, it's called a fleeting pleasure when you read the text for Moses was a place that God had led him to. God put him in this palace. He, he's the one who made him the adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter and making Pharaoh his grandfather. But look at what it says in verse 24 and 25. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he's 40 years old at, the point, at this point. We talked last week more about Exodus 2 than we will this week, uh, but this is Exodus 2 starting in verse 11 through about verse 16. When he was grown up, refused. What's God calling you to refuse? Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, and look at how he describes what it was for him to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the Bible's real honest. Sin is pleasurable, but don't miss this. It's temporary. That's why I call it temporary temptation. Refusing temporary temptation because the fleeting pleasures of sin, the actions refusing, the object is this position on the palace. And it goes on to talk about the wealth and how he weighed these things and considered the reproach of Christ a weightier wealth than all the riches of Egypt. And what, if you study this, and some of you might have a study Bible right now, and you've got a big Bible like this, and at the bottom there's little notes in it. And, and what you'll see is a lot of commentators or Bible scholars start to then talk about what was the wealth of Egypt. And they'll go to like King Tut's tomb, and this is how much wealth, all the gold that was in there. And so then this Pharaoh must have had, and you go through the, here's what we know. Uh, Egypt was the richest nation in the world. This guy ran the whole place. He's the richest guy in the world. So I just thought to myself, rather than trying to figure out inflation, if the Egyptians had this much money, what does that mean? Like, who's the richest guy now? Oh, Jeff Bezos. Okay. Uh, how much money does he have? Well, I read the number. It didn't mean anything to me because the number's too big. 330 some, I think it was 331 billion, probably 332 because somebody ordered something at the beginning of the service. You know? If you don't know who Jeff Bezos is, he's the founder CEO of Amazon, uh, owns the Washington Post, owns an aerospace, uh, like big, huge company, and he owns a bunch of stuff. So it doesn't mean anything for him to spend extra money on shipping. <laughs> In fact, he can have any of the comforts of this world that he wants. But see, the problem is, if we focus on that part of the passage, I think what we start to implicitly at least teach is it's wrong to be rich, or it would be wrong to be in the palace. Well, if you read your Bible, Abraham was loaded, and he refused wealth from people because, like, no, I want, I want to make it real clear that you didn't make me rich, God made me rich. He used it as a platform. Uh, Joseph lived in a palace, David was in a palace, uh, Daniel was in a palace, and so to present this like, oh, the sin for Moses was to be in the palace almost makes it like the palace is the sin. But here's what we see. One person's platform, David, a king, Daniel in the palace, Joseph, second in charge. One person's platform might be your stumbling block. And so what happens for Moses is if Moses tries to live David's life, that's sin. Because David's calling is Moses' sin. The sin for Moses here would have been to refuse God's calling for the sake of the comfort, because of things that are controlled, to not step out by faith, because without risk, it's impossible to please God. One person's platform might be your stumbling block, and that's pretty scary in our culture, because we're a pretty passive people, just so you know. To even talk about this series, some of us think we're going to stand before God and be like, well, I went to church and did what? Watched. It's like one of our biggest fears is fear of missing out. I promise you right now, somebody's having more fun than you. <laughs> somebody's preaching a better sermon than this. And you're like, oh, I'm going to find it. Well, you probably. Because we spend all this time watching other people's lives and watching TV and watching sports. Like your team won. You're just like, we won. You didn't do anything. <laughs> Get in the game is what God say. Like this is an active sport, Christianity. And it's a team sport, by the way. We do it together. So we don't shrink back. The author says, 
we continue to live by faith. What is that? Oh, it's assurance of things hoped for. It's conviction, oh, the things we really believe that we step out and do and things we can't even see yet because we don't know the future. But it's trusting the one who holds the future, who's actually existing in the future while he's presently with us in the moment. Think about that for a second. And so we get all wrapped up in other people's lives, whether it's our teammate, our classmate, somebody we work with, somebody down the street, our friend, somebody some other church, whatever. They, I, want their, I want their life. Now you're, now you're in sin because you're not living your life that God designed you for. Somebody else's platform might be your stumbling block. For Moses, staying in the palace would have been sin, not because it was wealthy to be there, because it's one where God called him to be. And so when he had considered, verse 26, weighed the options, when he had grown up, it says in our passage, he's about 40 years old, so he's really thought through this. It wasn't some emotional decision. He wanted to step into his calling. Ever been tempted to step into somebody else's? I have. I'm sure most of us have. I remember one time being told a story about Billy Graham. If you don't know who Billy Graham is, one of the most impactful evangelists that's ever walked the planet, maybe, maybe second to Paul uh, um, as far as impact for Jesus uh, since the New Testament. And uh, one time, because of the state of the country and just his position and popularity, uh, he was considering running for president. His wife, quite a fireball, uh, Ruth Graham, said to him, if God has called you to be an evangelist, don't stoop to be a president. <laughs> I will challenge you. If God's called you to be a janitor and that's your platform or in the palace, don't stoop. Moses, he was in the palace, but he wasn't going to stoop to be a prince when God had called him to wander in the wilderness with grumbling people so that they could experience salvation. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So no matter how big that was, Bezos big, for he was looking to the reward. Okay, because he had eyesight for something else. By faith he left Egypt. And then it's interesting this gets mentioned because it was mentioned about the parents too. Not being afraid. I think fear is kind of a big, big deal in our culture. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, but people are more afraid now than they were last year. There's studies on this, and so we can cite the studies, but you probably just know that. Just experience. I don't know if you watch the news. Here's something I would encourage you as a Christian watching the news. It's not wrong to watch the news, but you've got to ask yourself the question, is this making me more courageous for Christ? Is this catalyzing my courage? And I don't care which brand of the news that you watch uh, because it's, they're all saying the same message. It's all a fear message. I've watched all the channels, okay? So you're like, no, 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 you don't know my… Oh, I got this off-cable channel. Okay, maybe I haven't seen that one. But all the main channels, it's, if this person gets elected, do you know how bad it's going to be? Do you realize, your neighbors, watch out for them. Hey, wrap your kids in bubble wrap because it's a bad world out there. It's all this bad, 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 like all these things. And if you don't do, if you don't think what we think, you're in a lot of danger, a lot of fear. And then you ask people, what are they afraid of? Afraid of embarrassment. That's why, they, that's why public speaking comes up so much. I've just made a fool of myself enough times. I'm like, well, if it happens again, they, I love these people. They're my family. It's like fear of embarrassment, fear of death. Um, it's going to happen, just so you know. <laughs> You will die. Fear of failure. If you try anything, that's going to happen too. What are you going to learn from it? Fear of missing out. You're missing out on something. Every yes is a no to a lot of other things. Fear of the unknown. Fear of man. And so here it's really interesting when you study this passage. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, it says that Moses was not afraid of the anger of the king. But if you go to Exodus 2 and you read verse 14, it says that when they found out, or when he found out, that they knew that he had killed an Egyptian, he was afraid that word had gotten out. 
does the Bible contradict itself? And if you have study notes, what some of the people will put in study note type uh, Bibles is one of the common answers that people give is they'll say, well, the, the fear that's being talked about in Exodus 2.14 is when he killed the Egyptian and he's fleeing from Pharaoh, but what, what's being talked about here in this passage is the Exodus, and I think to myself, well, then the, the passage is chronologically out of order because the verse 28 talks about the Passover, and that happens before that. And then the really weird thing about if it's talking about the Exodus is Pharaoh asked him to leave. Why would I be afraid of a guy who said, get out of here, take my stuff? I don't think that's what's happening. I could be wrong. But I think what you see here when fear is being introduced is a more nuanced version that the Bible ends up showing us about how life really works. And it, it will totally wreck all your tweets and Facebook posts and bumper stickers that say faith over fear. What does that even mean? Faith in What? Faith it's all going to work out, says who? God didn't promise that. Because when we get through this chapter, uh, we don't have time to read verses 33 to 38, but it says there are some people who, because they stepped up by faith, they received the dead back by resurrection and their children. And, and, but some were tortured um, and refused to accept release when it was offered to them. Oh, uh, that's weird. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonments, were stoned. Some were sawn in two. So we don't know how this is going to go. Maybe resurrection, maybe you'll get sawn in two. I don't know, let's just see. That's risk. But they were looking to something else, a greater reward with a different vision. And, and I think the reason why chapter 11, verse 27 talks about not being afraid of the anger of the king, not just that it wasn't a fear, is because Moses had a fear that trumped the other fears. It was the fear of God. And so he wasn't an idiot. He knew if he stayed in Egypt, he was going to die. So he went to Midian, but he didn't abandon the call. Because when the burning bush happened, even though he was like, you, sure, you do know who you're talking to? Like, you know me, I tried this one, it didn't go well. Like, he went. God calls cowards to make courageous decisions. And then he grows up in this home and he considers what's taking place and the weight of the two things. And it's not an emotional decision, it's not a quick decision. It's a thought through decision that he makes, but not fearing. Like, he knew. You don't think that Moses, after growing up in this home for 30 plus years, the home where your grandpa is going to kill a nation of babies in order to maintain his throne. You don't think that he knew the guy led by fear? But he had a greater fear, and it was the fear of God. And so many of us, the problem with that is, is we have no idea what that really means, because if you have been in church for a long time, if you have heard it taught on, You've heard it neutered and taken away. And let me tell you why. I think it's well-meaning pastors. I think that the thought process is we want to make God more relatable to people. And so if we talk about this fear, then people are going to be like, well, God's scary, and I don't want to relate to a God that's scary, so I'll just say it's respect. You read the Bible? That's not what it says. And here's the problem. Anytime we try to make God into anything, the Bible calls that idolatry, not Christianity. And one of the plagues in the American church is this golden calf Christianity where we keep making God who we want him to be so that we hope people will like him. God doesn't need our help. Our job's not to make him into anything. We just point people to him. And when we come to the scriptures, maybe, maybe, non-believer and believer, maybe when we come to the scriptures, rather than trying to make the scriptures fit what we believe, when we find something in the Bible that's different than what we believe, maybe we should change what we believe. Just an idea. Putting it out there. Emails at Dave Morley. Just kidding. <laughs> so what is the fear of God? Well, as I was studying this week, I was like, 
we can't do this in a message. I'll give you a little survey, a couple things to hang your hat on, but please know it's way more nuanced than what I'm going to get to, and I jotted a note, like, we need to do a series on this. I thought if we did a series on fear, everyone would be like, just Pastor Scott telling us week after week, don't be afraid. It was like, the Bible commands, don't be afraid, but then it also says, you better be afraid. Don't be afraid of man, but fear God. In fact, the Bible actually says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Fools don't want it. So basically the Bible says, if you don't seek out what the fear of God is, you're an idiot. Bible, just take it up with the guy who wrote that, okay? I don't know his email address, but you can pray boldly before his throne. And so what is this fear? And so we got this one fear on the one hand. Sometimes it's false fear. You know, the majority of what we worry about never happens. That's, kind of, that's a false fear. And then there's real things that we should be afraid of in this life, like wounded or sawn in two. And like, there's a reason to be afraid of that. There's a reason why God wired us with this instinct for anxiety and fear. It is the danger. It's a survival mechanism. But we outweigh those things over our fear for God. So what's the fear of God then? Well, it's more than respect. I'll tell you that. If you're not a believer, it should be a terror a trembling in fear, because the Bible says that God's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and you're his enemy. Uh, that's not a good scenario. Look, he's a loving God. He's not your father, because you haven't accepted his son. And so, yeah, he created everything, but his wrath coming against you. And you say, well, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe. Well, here's the deal. You can believe whatever you want. This is true for Christians and non-Christians. That doesn't make it true. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true, and the weight of this is so significant, you better be right. Because this isn't like getting something wrong in your checkbook and they charge you a $25 fee. Hell is real, eternity is long. You have an enemy, and the Bible says he's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and we're all going to meet him. You better be right if you say he's not real. Or hell's not. And then even a lot of people that go to church don't think hell's real. Jesus says it is. I encourage you to see what he says. So what does the Bible say? And what does it say about the fear of God? Well, because it's so nuanced, some people have tried to come up with language to make it easier to understand. It doesn't fully explain it, but one guy, Martin Luther, the reformer, um, said there are two types of fear. There's more than that. But he says there's two types, servile fear, and that's the type of fear that a non-believer should experience. It's fear and trembling. It's somebody who's been imprisoned and their jailer's coming to torture them. Now, here's the reality. Uh, hell is going to be eternal torment forever, but it's what you wanted. Because you wanted life without God, and you just don't realize how much of his grace you're currently experiencing because he's giving you a chance to turn to him. And all he's saying, it's not that he's coming to torture you because he's some evil, wicked master. It's because you chose that you want a separation from him, and he's going to give you that. But as believers, the way that we mess this up, there's another kind of fear. And he, what Luther does, he uses the uh, Latin term for family. It's like a family kind of fear. It's like a, a child fears a parent, not because they're going to be tortured or even because they're going to be punished. But it's the fear of, because you love someone so much, of disappointing them because they're your source of love and security. So in a good, healthy family. So what's that fear look like? Well, the Bible gives all these angles on it that I think we miss because we're explaining it away. It actually says the fear of the Lord is the opposite of having a hard heart. So it's when we're sensitive to him and we respond to him. 
Here's a few verses that I'll share with you. will pop up on the screen um, just to give you an overview of this. Proverbs 1.7, I already quoted for you, and it's repeated through the Psalms, the Proverbs, the wisdom, wisdom literature repeats this statement all the time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I know we talk about as a culture, like, you know, kids are going to be messed up because of social media or whatever's going on out there. Maybe this is the problem. Deuteronomy 4.10. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me. It's a process. Learn to fear me. All the days they live on the earth that they may teach their children so. so it's our teaching them to fear God. We can't teach what we don't know. I've tried it with math. doesn't work. There's actually a joy in fearing God, according to the Bible. Listen to Nehemiah. When he's about to take a radical risk, put it all on the line for God, he prays. Nehemiah 1.11, he says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. There's joy in fearing God. Wasn't that fear of God stuff Old Testament? Philippians 2.12 is in the New Testament. Philippians 2.12, Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, not angry, you know I'm telling people that I love, people I'm for, I want what's best for you, I want you to know this. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, Paul's presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus, who tells his disciples, do not be afraid, also says this, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body, Jesus' words, in hell. See, what happens is when you get right fear right, all the other fears fall in the right place. The false fears, they're gone. You don't have any, why are you going to fear stuff that's never going to happen? And the other stuff that you legitimately should be afraid of, being in prison, sawn in two, getting your head cut off, like all that stuff, it's in its right place. It's weighted appropriately in light of God. But what you know what happens in the Bible also is that people who get those things shifted, they miss out on God's rewards. That's why the Israelites, when they were standing at the edge of the promised land, they had been through the Red Sea. They had seen miracle after miracle with Pharaoh. They knew they had a big God, but all of a sudden the circumstances, the people, the things that stood in the way looked bigger and they missed out. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like they did in the day of rebellion. And do you know what happened? They wasted their lives. What's the cost? What would it cost you? Comfort? Security? Or would you have the courage to refuse temporary temptation for something eternal? Courageous choice number two is to choose eternal rewards. I said pursue in the point just because I didn't want to say choice and choose, but the same idea. It's that you go after what's eternal rather than what's temporary. And so what you see in our passage, going back to our passage, verse 24 again, by faith, Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, there's the action, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, it is enjoyable for a moment, fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, so he's weighing this stuff out, the reproach of Christ, greater, weightier wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And they were big. How? For he was looking to the reward. It was eternal. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for, and here's more explanation on that. Here's how we know he wasn't afraid of the king. He endured as seeing him who's invisible. We hadn't read that yet. And so here you got Moses, and the picture is not some emotional decision where he just decided, you know, I'm going with Jesus, and we'll just see how it works out. No, he's considering. He's weighing this out. 
What's bigger? And you, we do this when we make decisions. A lot of times financial decisions. I don't know if you heard, but uh, a little bit over a week ago, I think it was, there was a big mega millions jackpot. And you're Christians. I'm sure you didn't pay any attention to that. And uh, One of the things, I was telling the first service, it's interesting having lived in different parts of the country um, throughout my life. And when I was in the north and I became a Christian, it was if you, if you thought drinking was okay, you're like some crazy liberal Christian. And in the south, gambling became a big deal. I remember saying something about it in a message one time and an elder came up and was like, whoa, whoa, be careful about that. All in language and people think that you're talking about poker. And I'm like, what? Okay. So I get it. I'm being culturally insensitive talking about the lottery. None of you played, but if you won, the box is in the back um, right there. And we'd love to build a children's wing, and we'll wash that money in the blood. We'll use it. It's great. Um, but the Mega Millions jackpot was over a billion dollars, and you can buy a ticket for $2. Now, most people know it's ridiculously unlikely that you're going to win. In fact, I read one mathematician one time who said, you're 300 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to win the lottery. I don't know if that's encouraging or not. Does that mean I'm going to get struck by lightning? It rains a lot, so... But what happened was people said, two bucks for a chance? They know they're burning their $2 most likely, but there's a chance. They weighed, it's worth the risk. Just losing $2. And we do this with bigger things, jobs. Some people work, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, 20, 30, 40 years of their life. If you use 30 years of your life like that, 50 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, 75,000 hours, you've decided se- that's bigger than $2, 75,000 hours in exchange for what they pay you, the platform it gives you, the meaning of that job, whatever reason you do that, maybe retirement, but you made that decision. Marathoners, most marathoners don't just go, I like running forever. It's like they think about crossing the finish line, the prize before them. Some people just are good at math, but I remember uh, being when I was a business major, going, calculus, are you kidding me? Who does that? Go bowling. This is not fun. Like, why would you do this? Only reason you do that is that athletes are putting in a lot of practice because you want to win the championship, because you want to get the scholarship, because you want to, you get the prize, you got to keep your prize in mind. And what Moses did is he weighed them out. I can stay in the palace. I can live a comfortable life. I've learned how to fight. I've been trained in all these languages. I've got international connections all over the world. I'm good. But this is a mist. The Bible says your life is a vapor. And God's calling me to something else. And so for Moses, it was like two bucks life, a vapor, in exchange for not a chance a guaranteed reward by the one who made all this? I'm in. How stupid do you have to be not to be all in? Because what a lot of people will do, they look at it from the perspective of only this life, and they go, what a dumb decision by Moses. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated. Who chooses to be mistreated? With the people of God? Then to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Why? It was all at your disposal, Moses. Moses had a different perspective. It was an eternal perspective, and we see the answer. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. It wasn't even a consideration than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was pursuing an eternal reward. What was the reward? Was it the people being delivered? No, it was the eternal reward. It was even more than that. Was it being known as his great leader? No, it was more than that. It was this connection to Christ, the reproach of Christ. And by faith, he left Egypt. How did he do this? Not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured seeing as, as seeing him who is invisible. Some people think that means the burning bush. I don't. 
because it it's not phrased here like it was a one-time event. It's something that he's continuing to do throughout his life, and it says not that he did see, it says as seeing him who's invisible. And so, if you go through Hebrews chapter 11 as a whole, it's pretty interesting, the language of seeing and not seeing. And what you see is that the people who do what other people won't do get to see what other people don't see. The people who will do what other people won't do, live radically by faith, get to see what other people don't see. Hebrews 11, how is faith even defined? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you might read through the whole chapter and just underline the unseen, unseen, unseen. That's what I did this morning. It says there, after, for, uh, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. You didn't see that. So that what is, un, or what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God made everything. He made everything that's visible, but he's unseen. And then you see things like this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Interesting language about death. Verse 6, and without faith it's impossible to please him. Okay, we talked about that a few times in this message. Uh, remember Pastor Alex's message a few weeks back? He said, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't see it. And it goes on to say, but he was looking to a city whose builder and architect is God, one he hadn't seen. But what is faith? Conviction of things not seen. It's faith that God's going to do what he says he's going to do in the future, even if you haven't seen him do it yet. It says in verse 12, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. Wait, they didn't receive them, but people who do, when no one else will do, see when no one else sees. And I was thinking about that for us, and you think about Moses, and it's his vision of God that fuels his passion to live by faith. And he has a vision of a big God. The problem for many of us is we have such a small God. And you talk about seeing things that are unseen. I don't know if you saw uh, just a few weeks ago the James Webb telescope pictures that came out from NASA. So I, I don't know if you're an atheist and what your thoughts are and you were just overwhelmed by the size of creation or if you're a Christian and you're like, wait, does this mean it's billions of years old? And like, what does all this mean? Like if you believe in, I don't care if you think, the, like I do, the, the earth is about 6,000 years old or if you think it's 13 billion years old, it's overwhelming how big all that stuff is. And we know the creator. One of the pictures, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, one of the first ones people saw uh, was this picture here. When I first saw it, I'm not an astronomer, I thought that looks like when I take a picture with my iPhone and forget to turn the flash on. <laughs> but as I dove into what is this picture and started to read about this, what I learned was, that, you know that in 1924, we thought there was only one galaxy and every star that we saw out there was part of the same galaxy? <laughs> then there was a scientist named Hubble who came up with a scope and he took some pictures, and we realized there was more out there. NASA, in their own words, describes this picture being the size of a grain of sand. If you were to take a grain of sand at the beach and hold it up an arm and see how big that is, that, it's a little, small, teeny glimpse of our universe, and each one of these dots and marks is a galaxy. And then one of the NASA people I watched in a video said, everywhere we look, there's more galaxies. And this is just a little, teeny sliver in our universe and Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. He created it all. Colossians 1, read verses 13 through 16, that he was before all, Jesus. 
He created it all, and he's holding it all together, which blows me away with this next picture. Look at the next picture. The next picture we have here is called, I think it's uh, Stefan's Quintet or something like that. Uh, we see the different galaxies. The theory of these galaxies is that they're playing like a tug of war with a gravitational pull from one another, and gases and stars are being pulled off, and that's the theory. But as I looked at it, it reminded me that all the pictures we're looking at are still. And scientists agree that the, it's all moving. In fact, that our universe is ever-expanding. And did you know also that there are many scientists that study these things that believe that there's more than just our universe? That we're part of a multiverse? Some even believe that there are an infinite number of universes. And Jesus is holding it all together. May this picture speak as I saw that one. My favorite one was uh, Carina Nebula. It's this one. Maybe you've seen it. It's the most colorful of the ones that came out. One Christian author that I was reading about this was blogging and said this, food doesn't have to be delicious, flowers don't have to smell good, and the Carina Nebula with its light years high cosmic cliffs doesn't have to be as beautiful and mysterious as it is, but it is. And then he says, you can almost see the breath of God. Then cites Psalm 33, 6, which we'll put on the screen, says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And then you try to think about how could we possibly, if God's created all this, if what Colossians says is true, that it was all created by Jesus and through Jesus and that God spoke it all into existence, finding these things shouldn't be detrimental to your faith. You should be in awe of an amazing God. And then you look at the Bible and what it says about him, and we try to put him in a box. He didn't stay in your box, just so you know. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He created all these things. He spoke it into existence, and he cares about the hairs on your head. He sees the sparrow. He's imminent and transcendent. And he's calling you and saying, the only thing that's impossible is for you to please me and not risk. Your vision of God will fuel your passion for God. With everybody's heads bowed and their eyes closed, I just want to ask you one simple question today. And the band will come, and, and we'll wrap up. It's an important question. So I want you to think about it. Is God calling you to risk anything for him? And if so, would you just pop your hand up? I don't need to know the details. God knows. But it's almost like you're saying, God, I hear you. I hear you talking to me. Is God stirring anything, anything in your heart for you to risk for him? Maybe it's trusting him as Savior, and, and that means for you, you don't know what your family's going to do. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't have everything figured out. What about creation? And I don't know if I believe in creation, but I know that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Is Jesus really the only way? And if God's speaking to your heart right now and saying, he's the only way, trust him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way for you to be forgiven. He's the only way to not experience the wrath of an all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present enemy. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Anybody else? Anybody else hearing other things? God's calling you to do something maybe with money, maybe with marriage, maybe with a relationship, maybe it has to do with joining the church. Maybe it's a conversation that needs to take place. You just pop your hand up. I want to pray for you follower of Christ and God's calling you to do something. Take care of somebody. Say something. Repent of a sin. Maybe it's something we mentioned in the message. Refusing a temporary temptation. Maybe it's putting your head down and doing some hard work for a prize that's later. Just pop your hand up. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are raising their hands and you're speaking and you're stirring and today they're hearing your voice. And they're responding. And Father, I pray that they wouldn't miss this moment, that whatever the next step is and the step that you're stirring them for, maybe you're preparing them, maybe it's the moment to 
make the call, give the money, break off the ties, something that's unhealthy. I don't know. You do. Will you speak right now? Give them the courage. Some maybe didn't raise their hand because they're afraid. If I raise my hand, I'm a little bit more committed. and Maybe they're just confused. I don't know what you're saying. Maybe you're preparing. I pray for all of us right now that your Holy Spirit would speak. Speak to our hearts. Stir, draw, change. Transform our thinking. There's some that have been thinking things that aren't true about themselves. There's some that have been thinking things that aren't true about you. We all have a lot of things to learn about you. Will you give us a little bit more truth today? You show us who you are? Like Moses when he says, well, who am I? And you said, I'm with you. Show us a little bit more that we can trust you. Give us peace. There's people here that need healing. Healing from church hurt. Healing from cancer. Healing from all kinds of things that have happened in this world. You promised there would be trouble. Thank you for overcoming. Thank you that there, aren't, there is no condemnation. People here that think they can't step out for you because of some dumb thing they've done in the past. Moses was a murderer. David an adulterer. Paul was killing Christians. And he used them. Show them your grace. Help us to understand and embrace your grace more. And open our hands of all that we're holding on to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.